But let's go ahead and read our text. We're going to look tonight at verses 1 through 14. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it also or has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day that we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has also delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we come here tonight and we are thankful for your faithfulness. We are thankful, Lord, for the power of the gospel that has touched our hearts and is transforming our lives. And God, I pray tonight that our hearts and minds and spirits would just be impacted and enlightened in this time of study and even more so in our time of circle groups as we study your word and discuss it among ourselves. We pray, Lord, for Jordan and the church there in Auckland, New Zealand, that you would continue to Um, empower him. Lord, I pray that he would not be timid because of his youth, that he would understand that you've not given him a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I pray, Lord, that he would walk in the the gospel, the grace and and the power of the gospel that you have entrusted to him, and that through his work there, many would be saved and come to Christ. So we give you this time tonight. Lord, be glorified in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Leo DiNardo's Da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper, I'm going to have him put it up on the screen here, is one of his most famous paintings. And it's interesting, when he first did this painting, you'll you'll notice that if you look at Jesus there in the middle, and Jesus probably didn't look like that. He wasn't that girly looking. But but you notice there's no cup in his hand. But it's interesting that when he first painted this, there was. And before it was unveiled, he, he wanted one of his friends to look at the painting. And he asked his opinion of it. 
And afterwards, the, his friend told him, he says, oh, it was a magnificent. But what he was really, really drawn to was the cup that was in Jesus' hand. And he said, man, the cup was just incredible. And when da Vinci heard that, he, he decided he was going to take the cup out of the painting. And his friend asked why, and he said this, nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. Da Vinci wanted all the focus to be solely on Jesus. And you know what? That's our heart as a church. That's why when you walk in the building there, it says, simply Jesus. That's why it says that on our sign. Our focus, our heart as a, a ministry, as a church, is we, we don't want the focus to be on people or programs. We want it to be solely on Jesus. And that is also the aim and the sentiment of this letter to the church in Colossae. You could say the aim of this letter to the Colossians is to remove all the distractions and put the beauty, the majesty, and the wonder, and the sufficiency of Christ front and center. The theme of the book of Colossians is the sufficiency of Christ. And the idea behind that is that Jesus is more than enough to meet the needs of men. Now, the reason that this letter was written was there was a problem that was going on in the first century that is also a problem, or it's true of our day and age. And it was this, that there were these teachers circulating through the area, and they were declaring that Jesus is great, but that he wasn't enough. And so they were challenging the sufficiency of Christ. And because the city of Colossae was on a trade route, and you know, in trade routes in those days, it just was a time for a lot of people and people that were traveling and these, these, you know, false teachers that were traveling along were spreading these false messages. And so it was circulating through this area and a belief called Gnosticism was in its infant stages at this particular time. We're going to talk about Gnosticism in a later study, but this particular belief had the potential to really undermine the, the people in Colossae, the believers in Colossae, their faith in Christ. Now, the book of Colossians was written to combat these false ideas that were circulating. And here's what's interesting about this book. I love the book of Colossians. Is that the book of Colossians, I mean, it's only four chapters, it's 95 verses in totality. You could read through this book in less than 10 minutes. There's way less information in this particular book of the Bible than you might find in an article in Sports Illustrated or some home magazine that, that you might read. But these 95 verses are absolutely life-changing. And the information in this little book has kept churches on track and followers of Jesus spiritually fulfilled and healthy for thousands of years. As we begin, let's meet the author. You know, the Bible, we're told that, that the Bible is inspired by God, but God has chosen to work and use human instruments in the writing of these books. And in this particular book was written by Paul, the apostle. 
We read, Paul the Apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. What's interesting about Paul, most of you know this, is that before he was Paul the Apostle, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a deeply religious man. He was a Pharisee. That means he was an expert in the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, as well as the law of Moses. And Saul of Tarsus was a man who had been trained in the best schools, under the best teachers, And he was not a fan of Jesus. You see, he didn't look at Jesus as being a fulfillment of the law like Jesus claimed. No, he looked at Jesus as a threat to everything that he stood for. And he sought to single-handedly put away these followers of Christ. So most of the believers were very, very scared of Paul. He would go into cities and have the followers of Jesus arrested. He even had some of them killed. And he was on such a mission to do this in the city of Damascus. You can read about this in Acts chapter 9 when he was blinded by a bright light and he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he responded by saying, who are you, Lord? He knew who it was. And he asked, and what do you want me to do? And and the, the voice behind the light identified himself. I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting me. But that question that Paul asked, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do, really became his passion and the pursuit of his life. And in that moment, he became a believer, And the mission and the passion of Paul's life became this, to know Jesus and to make him known. Now he also mentions here that Timothy was with him. Timothy was his young protege, and together they went out preaching the gospel. Now, the word gospel simply means good news. And the term gospel was often used in the classical Greek culture to speak of the report of victory like from a battle. They would say, good news, our guys won the battle. Good news, we had victory. That's what that word word stood for. And tonight, I want us to see what Paul tells us about the gospel in these introductory verses, verses 1 through 14 of the book of Colossians. And these verses read to me kind of like a symphony, like a two-part symphony with a bridge in the middle. And you can hear the excitement in Paul's voice because he begins this first stanza in verse 3 with the phrase, we give thanks. Everybody say, we give thanks. thanks. Let's, Let's say like you mean it, all right? One more time. That's Paul. He's like, we give thanks. Like, hey, this is exciting. I've got something exciting to talk to you about here. And, And we hear it again in the second stanza that starts in verse 12 when he says, giving thanks. Paul's excited about the impact that the gospel had on the city of Colossae and on the people there. And so in the opening verses tonight, we're gonna consider two things. We're gonna consider what the gospel is, And then secondly, what the gospel does. Let's consider, first of all, what the gospel is. And and the first thing, if you're taking notes, in verse 5, he he, he mentions or he tells us that it's the word of truth. In fact, let's begin reading here in verse 3. He says, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ and your love for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before, Here's the phrase, in the word of the truth of the gospel. 
When Paul thinks of the believers in Colossae, he is overjoyed at the impact that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has had on them. And so he commends them for their faith in Jesus. He commends them for their love for one another and for the hope that they were living with in the midst of a hopeless world. But I want you to notice how he defines the gospel there at the end of verse 5. The gospel is the word of truth. And I want you to note that it's not a truth. It is the truth. The gospel tells the truth about man's condition. It tells the truth. You know, when you go to the doctor, don't you want him to tell you the truth? I remember going to my doctor and he says, Rob, I got to tell you, you got to lose 30 pounds. I'm like, please don't tell me that. You got to start eating better. Strokes run in your family. And I, man, I didn't want to hear that. But you know, if you have something seriously wrong with you, you, you don't, you don't want to go to your doctor now and say, hey, you're good to go. And then you find out later you actually had cancer. And when you find out it's too late. No, you want him to be truthful with you, Right. You expect that. Well, the gospel is the truth. It tells the truth about man's condition because the Bible declares that man is a sinner. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And most of you know that that word sin is taken out of the world of archery when they would shoot the bow and arrow. If it didn't hit the bullseye, they would say sin. Now, and what that meant is you missed the mark. And the Bible says that we've all missed the mark of God's standard of perfection. It started with Adam. Adam missed the mark. He sinned. He rebelled against God in doing what God had told him not to do. And when Adam sinned, the Bible says that that sin, that sin nature, we could even call it like the disease of sin, entered into all of humanity and it affected us all. And sinners are ungodly. What does that word ungodly mean? Well, the word godly means perfect. So anything that is not perfect is ungodly. And that's all of us. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Yesterday I was hanging out with Tom Custer, who for years has led our security team here at the church. We actually have a security team here at the church, in case you didn't know that. And, um, and he said, I was asking, when did you first start coming here? And it was, it was like 16 years ago. And he said, you know, the first time I came, what brought me back is I heard you say this. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner like all of you. He goes, I never, ever heard a pastor say that he was a sinner. And so he says, I'm, I'm going to come back. <laughs> and he came back. He ended up getting saved. And, and, uh, but, but it's true. I, I am a sinner. You're a sinner. All of us, we are sinners. We have missed the mark. And it doesn't take long for us, after we've been born, to figure out that we are sinners. You know, when babies are first born, oftentimes they come out and they're holding them and the mom or dad will say, oh, he's perfect. She's perfect. But it doesn't take that long before you realize they're not perfect, right? And then you get to the terrible twos and you realize they're really, really not perfect, and then you get to the challenging teens, no offense, guys, and, and you realize they're, they're not perfect, right? And in those terrible twos, what's happening? That selfishness and that rebellion, the sin nature is just being played out in them. 
You know, it's been said that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's built into us. We're born into that fallen nature, and it's our sin that separates us from God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and the soul that sins will surely die. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, you said this was good news. This doesn't sound very good, but the fact of the matter is before we can get help, we need to know that we have a problem. And the good news is that although our sin separated us from God, Jesus came to die in our place. And this is the the focal point of the gospel is that it's centered on a person. And Jesus declared in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then just so we wouldn't understand, we wouldn't be confused about what the truth is. He said, he said in John 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now when someone, someone predicts their own murder, and then predicts that three days later they're going to rise again from the dead. And that's exactly what they do. We say that's somebody worth following. That's somebody who we can put all of our faith and trust in. So the gospel reveals the truth to us about how we can be made right with God. But notice verse 6, he tells us also that it's the truth for all the world. Which has come to you, he says, as it has also in all the world. Now I have been blessed by God to travel to many, many places in the world. And everywhere I go in the world, I see a common theme, that people realize that they're sinners, that people are dealing with guilt and shame, that they realize that they're not right with God. I've seen it in Africa. I've seen it in the Middle East. I've seen it in Europe, in Eastern Europe, in Central and South America, in Russia, in Australia, in New Zealand. Everywhere that I have gone, I meet people who realize that, hey, I feel guilty. I'm filled with shame. I know I'm not right with God. And there's this problem of sin. It's a universal problem, and the gospel is the universal answer. That's the good thing. It's a message that transcends time and place. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Now here's the thing. We need to realize the gospel, it's the message of God for hope for the world. And the, the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was not limited in its scope. It was for all the sins of the world, but it is limited in its application because it's only applicable to those who believe, who believe in the truth of the gospel. So we see that the gospel is a word of truth, it's a word of truth for the world. It's also a message of grace. Look at verse six again. He says, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day that you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. Now the word grace means receiving undeserved favor. It's when we deserve judgment, and we all did because of our sin, but God chose to show us grace. And when we think of a judge, we expect, we, think, we expect a just judge to carry out the law. So in our society, when a murderer gets off scot-free or with a slap on the wrist, we scream, not fair, not right. People riot over those types of things. 
Well, our God is a just judge. And that means that he couldn't just wink at sin. He couldn't just say, oh, people will be people. Oh, you know, bygones will be bygones. No, he, he had to judge sin. And in his grace, though, he sent Jesus to take the punishment that we deserved. That he, as the judge, as the judge looked at all of us and slammed down the gavel and said, guilty. And then he took off his robe and said, now I'm going to pay the price. Now I'm going to pay the price for the punishment that you deserved by going to the cross. It's a message of grace. In fact, look at Paul's intro once again where he says, grace and peace to you. And it's been said that grace is who God is and peace is the result of knowing him. There's an acronym for grace that means God's riches at Christ's expense. So what is the gospel? It's the word of truth. It's for all the world. It's a message of grace. But here's the next thing we want you to see in verse 7. The gospel is humanly transferred. Notice verse 7. It says, As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister on Christ, of Christ on your behalf, who has also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now, this man Epaphras was saved. He was from Colossae, but he was saved on a trip to Ephesus where he heard the, the apostle Paul preaching the gospel. And he took that message that he heard and he went back home and he started sharing it with his friends and they started getting saved. And the first church that happened in Colossae actually met in his house. Talk about transformation. Talk about the power of the gospel. That's why Paul would write in Romans chapter 10, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe. You see, the power is in the message. We need to understand this, that the power is not in the person delivering the message. It's like if, if someone were to deliver to you a telegram or a, a message, not a telegram, that's like, but a message to you, okay? A letter, a hand, you know, whatever they call it, you know, a hand-delivered letter, and, and it's telling you that you just inherited $10 million. All you got to do is take this letter with your name on it and these, and take this to the bank and they're going to give you $10 million. Well, the, the power's not in the guy delivering. The power's in the message. If, if you went and just said without the, that piece of paper, you know, hey, Rob told me to come here and that you have $10 million. Like, who's Rob? You know? No, the power's in the message. And that's what Paul was saying. And we, church, we need to understand this. We have been given the most powerful message in the world. And we just need to share it. We just need to get it out. Because it has the power to transform lives. And this is what, I want you to catch this tonight. This is one of the, the, the big things. I'd love for you guys to discuss this in your um, circle groups tonight. Is this reality that God has chosen to use human instruments like Epaphras to get this message He's chosen to use human instruments like you and me to share the gospel. God has chosen people to be bearers of the good news. Recently, in, in my devotions, I've been going through the book of Acts. And I came to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, you guys are familiar with this story. It's of Cornelius. Cornelius is this Roman centurion who converts to Judaism. So he is a man who is seeking God. He's a man of prayer, and he's praying one day to God. Now, he's not a Christian. He doesn't know Jesus. 
But he believes in, in the God of, of Ju- Judaism. He believes in Jehovah, and he's praying to him. And God sends an angel. Now, now catch this. God sends an angel to him to tell him this. Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. And here's what he wants you to do. Send some men to Joppa to go and get Peter. And Peter's going to come and tell you what you must do. Here's what I want you to catch. The angel doesn't share with him the gospel. The angel doesn't tell him about Jesus. He could have. But God doesn't choose to have angels sharing the gospel. He says, no, I want you to send for Peter. And this guy, Peter's going to come, and he's going to tell you what you need to do. And Peter comes, and Peter preaches, and, and, and Cornelius and his whole family ends up getting saved. And I thought to myself, that is so interesting. He could have just had the angel tell him about Jesus and the work of the cross, but he's, God has chosen to use human instruments to share the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's the word of truth. It's for all the world. It's a message of grace. It is humanly transferred. But the last thing I want you to notice is that the gospel is something that we are to grow in our knowledge of and our understanding of and our application of. And this is what I would call the bridge to this song if this was a orchestra here. Look at verse 9. He says, For this reason, we also, since we, the day that we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to catch this. Paul is saying, we are so thankful for your faith, for the hope that you have in Jesus, for the love that you're sharing with one another. But he says, we're praying, though, that the reality of the gospel would grow and expand in your lives. And he says, he goes, I'm praying that you would have a deeper knowledge of who God is. I'm praying that you would walk worthy of your calling. The idea there is that your profession of faith would weigh as much as your walk for Jesus. I like to put it this way, that you would be who you are in Christ rather than who you are in the flesh. He prays that the effects of the gospel and Jesus being in your life would produce spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that it would be evident in our lives. Pastor Chuck used to say, you can know a tree by its fruit. And he says, and that you would walk in the strength and power and the patience of Jesus Christ, that his strength and his power and his patience would be yours. And this is what I want you to catch, that the gospel is not just a truth that we embrace for salvation. I want you to catch that, because oftentimes that's what we think. Oh, yeah, the gospel, we embrace that for salvation, and that's where it stops. No, it's a truth that is meant to continue, that we are meant to continue to grow in, and it is to shape our lives and our lives as we become more surrendered to Jesus Christ on a daily basis. The truth of what the gospel is and what it does and the work of Christ begins to impact our lives more and more. So there's the first stanza of this song. And then we come to the second stanza, what the, what the gospel does. 
And there's five things that we're going to just breeze through rather quickly here, beginning in verse 12. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The first thing he tells us is that the gospel has qualified us. Now, we're familiar with that term as it relates to being approved for a house or a car loan or being approved for um, a college. The Greek word qualified means to authorize, to make sufficient, and to empower. It's what it's talking about here. And what Paul is saying here is that God has given us his stamp of approval. He has given us his authorization for we as believers to be in his kingdom and to partake of his inheritance. He's saying you have been qualified, you have been approved to be a part of the family of God. But here's what I want you to catch. The emphasis here is that this is the work of God. Notice he says, giving thanks to the Father. In other words, it's God who qualified you. You didn't qualify yourself. It's the opposite, you see, of being accepted for a college or approved for a house loan or a car loan. In those things, the emphasis is on your academic achievements. It's on your credit score. It's on your bill-paying history. You are qualified in those things or approved in those things based on your performance over a long period of time. But here what he's telling us, the emphasis is on God's performance. It's what God did for you. It's what he did in sending his son. That when we were spiritually bankrupt, when our moral performance fell way short of the grade, that we missed God's standard of perfection, that he sent his son Jesus to come to this earth and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's really what separates Christianity from every other religion. Because every other religion really teaches this is what you need to do to qualify yourself. But the message of Christianity is this is what Jesus did to qualify us. It's not a message of do, it's a message of done. So what does the gospel do? It qualifies us. Secondly, it delivered us from the power of darkness. The power of darkness would encompass the power of sin, the power of the devil, the power of our flesh. And he's saying we have been in Jesus delivered from all of that. That we have freedom now in Christ and we can walk in a freedom and power because of what Christ has done for us. That we are no longer, we no longer live our, no longer need to live our lives in bondage to fleshly appetites. So that's what the gospel does. It qualifies us. It delivers us from the power of darkness. And then he uses this term, it conveyed us. That word means to transfer. It transfers us. It's taking one, one thing out, it's taking it out of one thing and placing it into another. And the idea is that you and I have been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom. He calls it the kingdom of love in his son. God's kingdom. That we belong to a new kingdom that this world is not our home it's why i love this in the in the introduction paul says that he paul an apostle of jesus christ by the will of god and timothy our brother and he says to the saints who are faithful brethren in christ who are in Colossae. they're taken out of this thing and put into jesus 
But they're living now in the world, but to live not of the world. And that's what God's, God has called us to. He's delivered us from one kingdom and he set us free to be a part of another. You were rescued in order to belong, in other words. And this is where this continues to, to build because he says this in verse 14, in, him, in whom we have redemption through his blood. This is the, the next thing we see that the gospel does. It redeems us. The word redeem means to buy at a price. It's the idea of paying off a ransom. And this is what I want you to catch. Jesus didn't just come and break us out of our bondage like a jailbreak, and now we're free, but now we're wanted fugitives. That's not what he did for us. That wouldn't be a, a great way to live, right? That fugitives are always looking over their shoulder. They're always wondering if they're going to get caught again. No, the way that Jesus rescued us and delivered us is he paid the ransom. And how did he pay it? With his blood. He paid the price for our sins. He paid the debt that we owed so that we are delivered from bondage and we're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and we are welcome into his kingdom as his beloved sons and daughters. But here's the catch. The one that we sinned against was him. Isn't that the interesting thing? We sinned against God and that's what ended, put us in this place of, of being in bondage to darkness and in bondage to sin. And Jesus comes to rescue us out of that, even though our rebellion was against him. But that's how much he loved us. And when we respond to his grace, we are delivered and brought in and qualified that's what the gospel does for us and to us and in us. But there's one more thing that Paul shares is that, that the gospel does. In verse 14, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Not only are we redeemed, but we're forgiven. I want you to catch this. This is so amazing. You see, it's one thing if he just redeemed us and said, okay, hey, I paid the price. You were guilty of sin. You were bad. But I paid the price for you. That would be great, right? That would, that would be good enough. But he goes further. He says, and not only that, you're forgiven. And your sins, which are many, they're forgiven and forgotten. They're put out of, God has the ability to put our sin out of his remembrance. So when you say, Lord, I'm sorry, Lord, I did it again. He's like, again? What are you talking about? I've forgiven that. I put that as far as the east is from the west. You see, he seeks to elevate us into this incredible status. And so, precious church, this is what the gospel is, and this is what it does. And may we walk in the reality of this blessed truth, and may we share this glorious news whenever and wherever we absolutely can, because it is the power that changes lives. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And as we now break up into our groups, God, we pray that you would just be in these discussions that we have tonight, that we would just stir up one another to love and good works. In Jesus' name, amen.